1979 was the last Women's Liberation Movement conference, the one they had in London. And that that was it, just all went, it all went to shit really after that. (laughs) That doesn't sound like a life-changing moment, but for Jane Connor it was. Because at that disastrous conference, a group of young women decided it was time to shake things up. What was interesting, what was important for me, actually what really mattered about that, was there was a workshop that was organised for young women really. And that was interesting because there there were a few young women there and it just provided a bit of a space to voice some frustrations like you know young people oh, that, that's what you are you always think you know the older people don't understand they're only concerned they're not concerned about you and stuff so I had probably a bit of a moaning session about it um and but actually the outcome of that was the suggestion about actually getting together and producing a magazine and that didn't sound crazy at all because that, that's what everybody was doing So in the depths of the winter of discontent, as the women's liberation movement was crumbling, a group of idealistic young women brought Shocking Pink into the world, a feminist fanzine with a neon glow that would grab everyone's attention from the BBC to the sun. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman, and for the next few weeks, I'll bring you previously unheard stories about amazing women who've changed society. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you like what you hear, give us a rating and a review. Even better, share it with your friends. This is our fourth series, and it is a special one, as the stories come from the Museum of Youth Culture Archives. So my name is Lisa. I work for the Museum of Youth Culture, where I am the Archive Projects Manager. The Museum of Youth Culture is an emerging museum that celebrates and preserves youth culture over the past hundred years, using photography, ephemera and personal stories. In 2020, I was approached by Lisa to collect 10 stories about women activists and youth culture for their project, Growing Up in Britain. As a museum, we were working with this amazing photographic archive for a really long time, but arguably the biggest change in our journey to becoming a museum of youth culture was launching our Grown Up in Britain campaign. Uh, And it came out of this discussion around what is the future museum going to look like? How do we want to tell the story of teenage life? And how can we best do that? And our photographers are amazing. They tell these kind of really evocative pictures about a time and place um and and they're often shot by young people learning their trade by photographing their friends their family or the scenes that they're involved with but they don't tell the whole picture and that's actually quite a big brief to try and say that we're trying to collect and tell 100 years of youth culture so what we started doing in 2019 is we started inviting the public to send in their photographs and their stories of growing up with the idea that everyone's been young so everyone can be part of the Museum of Youth Culture. And it's a really nice way to uh, open up the museum and build a museum from the ground up rather than us saying this is what youth culture is. We're actually letting people tell that story for themselves. But it's also a great passport with which to travel across the UK uh, and meet lots of people and really expand out of our London bubble because we've always been based in London. Now, initially, setting the record straight was kind of a really big project to kind of uh, push Grown Up in Britain forward for the first time. And it was going to look at traveling across the UK and looking at underrepresented communities in the museum's collections. We got the funding in February 2020. 
Um, and uh, we started planning and then the lockdown hit. So that idea of traveling across the UK just wasn't possible. So we went back to the drawing board and we were how we still have the same aim. We want to expand the collections. We want to look at what stories are underrepresented in our collections. And we want to find exciting ways of collecting those stories. That's about working collaboratively. Lisa commissioned 10 oral historians in total, covering a wide range of stories from 80s and 90s Asian underground music scene to black women and subcultures. And of course, me. Connor was born in 1962 and moved to London when she was 15. Culturally was post-punk era and the kind of rise of of Scar and certainly in terms of my musical tastes and kind of what I liked. I bought some, um, I must be by the specials aka, it was their first single but I was the first person in Muswell Hill to buy it and I was quite shocked because I thought oh, I'm pretty I'm, you know, right ahead of the curve here. And and so that was going on. So I actually used to do a lot, go to a lot of gigs, uh, places like the Marquee, the 100 Club, Dingwalls, uh, but also the Lyceum had these really Sunday night kind of amazing four or five bands on. So that was kind of a big part of my youth. But that obviously was also affecting kind of broader culture. And, uh, you know, you had the sort of football fanzines developing, but you had all the kind of music uh, zines. And what, what punk had kind of unleashed, I suppose, was this kind of DIY. You know, you can do it. You can make a record. You can make a magazine. Yeah, it was just very, very... Uh, very very exciting I suppose and it's really weird because it's kind of you know you've got a Tory government you know 70 79 you've got the first Tory government in a long time so in one sense things things might be grim but there's there's a kind of real sort of counterculture going going on and Jane embraced this DIY culture I was in a band uh, uh and and we you know we just made our own EP we recorded it in Philip Hall's garage at the bottom of Muswell Hill. We got it pressed. We sent it to John Peel. John Peel played it. Um, we went. Uh, we had a few gigs at sort of uh, Camden and, and a couple of universities and things like that. And, you know, we, our, our fame lasted. Well, we wasn't really fame, but, you know, it was 30 seconds of fame because it was the ultimate because John Peel played it. His band was called Buddy Hernia and the Rickettes. And I was inevitably a riquette with two other uh, women. That was uh, that was That's amazing. Yeah, no, it was it was. I'm, I'm, my 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 son doesn't really believe it and doesn't really want. To, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we had our we were reviewed in NME Esther. So, wow. And kind of that's sort of quite, you know, that's sort of quite, that's sort of quite exciting. So I think those particularly yeah. those years uh, when I was 16, 17, 18 were fab. The, the years I was meant to be doing my A-levels, As well as the music, clubs and DIY culture, Jane was influenced by her local youth club. 
Oh, I went to a girls' night in Muswell Hill, sort of tail end of second wave feminism, this whole movement really about um, girls, uh, youth, youth workers, some amazing women out there. It was really about confidence building. It was about, you know, having that space and having a lot of fun. And we did just pretty much the normal kind of usual things you do in a youth club, playing table tennis, listening to music, chatting, but again, with a bit of kind of subtle, subtle sort of consciousness raising as well, I think, from the women youth workers. By 16, Jane was politically active. By 17, she was attending the Women's Liberation Conference. Unfortunately, as she's pointed out, just when it was all going to shit. This movement of the late 60s and early 70s always had different schools of thought about women's oppression. Yet the movement held together through a shared consensus about abortion rights and equal pay. By the mid-70s, the schisms had grown wider with two main camps, the socialist feminists and the radical feminists. Socialist feminists saw women's oppression through the lens of class struggle and were prepared to make alliances with men. Radical feminists placed their oppression within the patriarchy, seeing all men as the problem. Things came to a head at that 1979 conference. It would be the last of its kind, the beginning of the end of second-wave feminism. Yet it was far from over for the wider movement, with a new generation of women about to shake things up. Recruiting help from iconic feminist magazine Spare Rib and legendary photographer Joe Spence, Jane and her friends began work on the first edition of Shocking Pink. The intention was that we we were pretty sort of ambitious. We were going to be an alternative, feminist alternative to Jackie magazine. Brilliant. We wanted to create a popular, I suppose, magazine. I think think probably we had aspirations to it being a little bit glossier than than it ended up. But it was a magazine for young women by young women that, that that was I don't know if that was a byline but that's what it was it was it was ours the agenda was set by a collective of young women aged from about 11 through to 19 19 20 and I do and I absolutely remember we had we met at the cockpit um theatre uh, they had a meeting room there I, I, remember, I can't I'm sorry I can't remember the names but you know I remember one of the meetings and there were there was this kind of these I think probably 11 and 13 year old sisters and mama brought them there was a feminist who brought them along it was just absolutely it was heady 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 days. <laughs> the first edition launched with a flurry of publicity. There was certainly an initial flurry of publicity as well there was quite a lot of media interest in it we probably probably had you know we must have had somebody who knew about sending out press releases and things because for example I was I was interviewed on Radio 1 this this taxi they they literally sent a taxi for me to 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 Hornsey um and and took me down there I was interviewed uh, I think we there was featuring uh probably the Guardian you know Sunday Saturday magazine uh, various other 
you know that kind of that sort of coverage there was even stuff in the tabloids as well uh, which was perhaps not quite as um i was going to say was that um positive or negative no or? no were, i think i think there's the stuff in the mirror is all right but i can't remember the sun i think the sun was just probably a bit a bit sort of patronizing and and it was all oh, these 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 sort of kids sort of you know wanting to rival jackie and why on earth what's wrong with it it's a bit like kind of what's wrong with jackie and things Age was still a real taboo. So it, it might have been fine for Cosmopolitan to talk about clitorises and orgasms and things, but it was pretty shocking that girls, children, really, because some of them right. define as children, were involved in, in something like that. Second wave feminism had been criticised for excluding women of colour and also bisexual and lesbian women. Although third-wave feminism was still years away, Shocking Pink pioneered new ideas on intersectionality. And then the actual photo story, the first photo story, was Michelle, it's her coming, it's her coming out story. And again, probably it's her coming out at 14 or, or something, you know, working class, um, you know, young lesbian and her, her coming out at school and, and being bullied and, and, and stuff like that. So quite challenging, really. It was, you know, picked up on, on, on racism, on sexuality, on class, on, on gender. It's, it's all actually in there. Irish, I think there's probably stuff about uh, Irish experience of Irish young women in terms of, you know, in terms of the troubles. Jane was involved for around 18 more months before leaving for university in Brighton. After that, she moved to Manchester, where a new chapter began. Um, I was living in Manchester so I'd been to university in Brighton and then I moved up to Manchester and I wasn't working um, so I was just like pretty much sort of full-time kind of political activist and obviously the, the main thing was the miners was the miners strike uh let's me go to what the miners had been established in London sort of inspired by that we set up the group in Manchester I think there were probably a couple of other areas we collected outside kind of clubs we went on the we went on the picket lines. We you know went along to sort of minor socials in the in the East Lancashire coalfield. But we also and we also organised our gig, and that was that was driven particularly by, by my flatmate Deborah. Uh, she she was she did a whole lot of the whole lot of the sort of work around organising that. And there's a again on YouTube there's a film. So the the buzzcocks played. Um, and where was this gig? That was at that. Oh, it was at the Hacienda, which was the coolest. Yeah, and it was a fundraising thing. Yeah, it was or... a fundraiser. It was a fundraiser. So, so you know, Pete Shelley and Buzzcocks played free. I think Tony Wilson, who ran the Hacienda, probably gave it to us for free. In 2014, the film Pride was released, exploring the unlikely alliance between the LGB community and the miners. In the movie, there was tension at first. Later, solidarity emerges as they realise their shared oppression, capitalism. I was curious to know how accurate this portrayal was. The film Pride is, there's some kind of poetic liberties and things like that. And actually they didn't meet, the guys didn't meet any hostility really when they were, and that was, that was likewise our experience. Starting from the kind of basis which, which Mark Ashton 
you know really set spells out doesn't he in in the film pride is you know we're there we're there to support you and actually your miners were very welcome for anybody who would support them particularly as the, um, the strike went on and so i openly i remember going and sort of doing a slow dance with a uh, a woman she wasn't from she wasn't from the she wasn't one from the coalfield she'd come she'd come with one of solidarity groups um at, at a at a sort of miners welfare in somewhere like wigan or you know somewhere like that it's absolutely fine you know i mean they might, they might have got the odd look but there was never any hostility still identifying strongly with the women's cause jane split her time between lesbians and gay support the miners and women against pit closures you know, the irony is that there is a kind of supporting the men, but it again took on a life of its own. It was kind of very much sort of women, women kind of leading, leading the struggles. And, and what you had was, as you get perhaps often in the campaigns is, you know, women taking on these enormous kind of logistics exercises and just being really, really well organised, really great at going out and raising, uh, raising money and just again organising as women. You might invite a speaker, sort of one of the miners, but again, my recollection of women against pit closures meetings is they were women, you know, they were women's meetings and it was women organising, miners' wives, daughters, aunties, plus then supported by, by women activists, women from the labour movement. By 1985, the miners were defeated. Jane turned her attention to UCND, which she'd been involved with before the miners' strike. So I'd also been involved in um, youth CND, so the anti-missiles movement. Again, we had a local group and uh, uh, sort of in, in, in Haringey, but we had what was sort of youth CND kind of nationally organised in particular for over a couple of couple of years running. They organised these um sort of marches around the the American bases in the sort of in the south of England, kind of youth marches for peace, that kind of thing. He'd march for sort of 10, 15 miles and then get put up in a usually often a Quaker hall or something like that. And that was just like brilliant, brilliant fun. I mean I don't know how much you we achieved politically, but it was it was good. You know, we were kind of highlighting the what was going on at the US bases. I suppose that's a similar time to which Greenham Commons started. The endless fight for social justice took its toll on Jane. You know, the 80s, for me, you know, it's just an entire decade of, kind of decade of struggle, really, which which sort of carried on. And, and for me, it kind of carried on until the sort of early 90s, and I think by that time, Esther, I was really kind of burnt out. Um, yeah. um, I had my first child in 96 and, and really wasn't kind of very, act, very active other than, in, other than in my trade union. Today, Jane works as the Director of Public Health at the London Borough of Greenwich. This saw her take a leading role in the fight against COVID in 2020. She continues her activism, especially around women's issues. In 2021, she organised a local vigil following the murder of Sarah Everard and a Reclaim the Night march. As with all the women in our series, for Jane, the struggle never really ends. Culture is working towards setting up a permanent space in Birmingham, a national museum telling the story of youth culture in Britain. While we wait for that to be completed, you can visit their current exhibition, 
growing up in Britain, 100 Years of Teenage Kicks, which is on until the 12th of February 2023 at the Herbert Art Gallery and Museum in Coventry. If you have stories you want to submit to the Museum of Youth Culture, see the show notes for a link to their website. You can also find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Join us next time on Rebel Women for more stories of rebellious youth.